Welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASBGAN. My name is Jason Silverman, and today I am joined from Nationwide Children's Hospital by my good friend and co-host, Dr. Jennifer Lee. How are you doing, Jen? Hey, Jason. Good to see you. Good to see you. So, Jen, I have to tell you something. Our neighbors where we live are putting us to shame because I am surrounded by a large number of people who take not only great pride, but clearly enjoy working on their lawns. And they're planting flowers in their flower beds now that it's spring and they're planting new shrubbery and they're trimming their shrubs and everybody's lawn is looking like top notch. And I got to tell you, my wife and I, we are not green thumbs at all. And we keep it in check. It's not a weed farm, but we're just not those kind of showy people. And I think what it comes down to is we both appreciate beautiful, well-manicured, lovely looking yards, but neither of us take any enjoyment in working in the yard. How about you? Are you all about your green space? So I love it. I'm just not very good at it. So the people who owned the house before, we bought our house two years ago now, and the people who owned it before actually had professional landscapers come in and do the flowers. Mm. So when I first moved there, they I had an app. I took a picture of every flower. We have 64 varieties of flowers in my yard, uh, most of which have maintained vitality <laughs> since we've moved in. That's Not amazing. all. But it has been really fun. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to add this year I planted 96 bulbs with the help of one of my lovely neighbors. And so far, only two of them are growing. So I'm not sure if they're supposed to grow this year or if bulbs take a year. But if any of my listeners have any tips, please send them my way. And what, what kind of flowers were they? Gladiolus and uh, dahlias. Okay. So everyone, I can email <laughs> Jen Lee, tweet at her, Jennifer Lee Lee one, and, and let her know what she's got wrong or if she should just wait until next year. Oh, I'm trying. I really am. I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but um, some of them are growing. So we'll see what happens. Okay. <laughs> and if any of our listeners are in the Edmonton area, really love gardening but don't have a garden of your own or you're already done your garden, let me know. Happy to let you play in our space. <laughs> so if anyone has their uh, tips for us, we can definitely revisit it later in the summer. But before we move on to our topic, Jason, do we have any announcements today? Yeah, Jen, we do have some announcements. Uh, I guess first off, once again, this episode is CME eligible. So be sure to click the link in the show notes to claim your CME credits after listening to the episode. And also, second, today's topic is also going to recur in an upcoming edition of the Peds GI Chat. So follow at Peds GI Chat on Twitter and stay tuned for further news about when to join in with our guest today on Twitter to talk more about this topic. And can I please just clarify, the CME is for the topic of pediatric gastroenterology and cystic fibrosis, not for how to grow flowers in your garden. So just That's clarify. Right. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Unfortunately, we can't give CME credit uh, for growing your daffodils. 
not daffodils, but yes. Well, we have a great show today. We do. We have the great pleasure of talking to someone who I think we can call friend of the show, Dr. John Pohl. And for those of you who don't know him, Dr. Pohl actually preceded me as chair of the Naspina Technology Committee. But more than that, he is a professor of pediatrics for the University of Utah School of Medicine. And most importantly for our topic today is that he staffs the Pediatric Cystic Fibrosis Clinic at Primary Children's Hospital at Salt Lake City. And today we're going to talk about cystic fibrosis from the perspective of a pediatric gastroenterologist. And of course, we know CF is a multi-system disease that goes far beyond the well-known pulmonary concerns. So not all of us work in CF. So this is a great opportunity to cover aspects of the disease that impact the GI tract and what we can do to help our kids and their families. On to the show. On to the show. Dr. Pohl, thank you so much for joining us on Bell Sounds today. Really appreciate you being here. And we're going to start, obviously, I know you quite well. Jen knows you. You passed the baton of the Naspigan Technology Committee to me, and we worked together quite a bit over the years. But for those people that don't know you in our audience, and there are Still going to be one or two of those people. <laughs> Might be the most challenging question you get today, but how would you describe yourself in one sentence? Yeah, I would say, and first of all, thank you for inviting me, but I would say that I'm a general pediatric gastroenterologist. And what does that mean? Well, two things. First of all, lay people have no idea what it means when you say you're a pediatric gastroenterologist. I have to explain that quite a bit because they know what a pediatrician is and they know what a gastroenterologist is, but Often the lay public doesn't know that there are pediatric subspecialties like pediatric GI. And then the other issue, often other pediatric gastroenterologists, I see this more in academics than in private practice, assume that there must be one specific thing that I do, but this really isn't me. I've done a bit of all of it. Obviously patient care is primary what I do, but I've done some research. I'm involved with education. I've done quite a bit of public outreach. So I do consider myself a general pediatric gastroenterologist. Okay. That's awesome. Great. Thank you. So moving on to get to know you a little bit more, tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or movie that you read, listened to, or watched recently that you recommend. I have a few for each, but it'll be quick, I promise. <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah. So books. So I actually read this really cool book about the Herod family in Judea at the time of Cleopatra. It's called The Herods by a guy named Bruce Chilton. It's really amazing history. Very much recommend that. But dealing with ancient Rome, ancient Egypt, and Judea. And then I have been deep in the middle of the the Expanse science fiction series by James Corey in book five right now. I am I kind of like science fiction quite a bit. And then I'm working on a theology degree right now. And I have really gotten into the philosopher Albert North Whitehead. And I just finished his Adventure of Ideas. I really like that about process, philosophy, and process theology. In terms of podcasts, I just listen to Bounce Sounds. That's all I listen to over and over. <laughs> but if I had to listen to other podcasts, there's a science one I like. I've liked for over 10 years called Science Sort of, run by a guy named uh, Ryan Haupt, who's a paleontologist. And they kind of cut out for a while, but they're back on again. Lots of good science for the lay public. I like uh, a very laid back Christian podcast called Homebrew Christianity. There's a really good physics podcast I like called Into the Impossible. And there's a philosophy podcast I like called Panpsychast. And then in terms of movies, uh, I saw King Richard the other day about the Williams sisters. That was actually really good, but I'm really into series right now. 
And I highly recommend for everyone who's in healthcare to watch Dopesick with Michael Keaton. That's just amazing about the uh, opioid pandemic in the United States. And I'm really into the comedies, what we do in the shadows. I like the movie. I like the series. And I'm really into uh, Larry David's Curb Your Enthusiasm. There are a lot of things there to keep people occupied. I, I like those suggestions. So I, I haven't watched any of the What We Do in the Shadows series. I watched the movie, loved it. I've always loved the like Christopher Guest uh, mockumentary kind of movies. And I've heard that the show is kind of just continues in that tradition. So. It is amazing. It, it is. I didn't think it'd be as good as the movie. There's an energy vampire that is the best character in the history of comedy, I swear. You know, I feel like I need to be that. I wish I was an energy (laughs) vampire because I feel like all the energy gets sucked out of me. And what I'm hearing is maybe when my children are a little bit older, maybe I'll have time for podcasts and books and TV. (laughs) Yeah, I will tell you, as my kids got older, it became a lot easier. And Susan, I became empty nesters this year in August. Congratulations. I really started watching series, like binge watching. I had no idea how to do that prior. You actually have your evenings and weekends to yourself. I love my girls, but they are energy vampires. <laughs> black holes. Yes. So lovely black holes. It's true. It's true. So we have had the good fortune of having a couple of pancreas people. I know you're a general pediatric gastroenterologist, but we have had a couple of pancreas people on the podcast within the, the last little while. We've had Ali Ouch and Sohail Hussein covering acute, re- acute, recurrent, acute, and and chronic pancreatitis. And so the Inspire group has come up a number of times and, and you've been involved in the Inspire group as well. I just want to ask, so how did you develop your interest in the pancreas? And specifically, how did you develop your interest in CF and get involved in CF? Yeah, in, in somewhat of a roundabout way. So currently I'm not a member of the Inspire group, but I have been in the past. That is just an excellent NIH funded research group in terms of their publications and what they discover in I highly recommend reading what they've published. But in terms of what I did, my prior job was at a much smaller academic facility. And we had a cystic fibrosis team there that was very small, one pulmonologist. I ended up coming on board because there were some questions about malnutrition in that patient population and placing G-tube. While I was there, the pulmonologist got a job at another institution and left. And so I ran that CF center. We uh, reported we were a satellite center for UC Southwestern, but I ran that for a number of years and really became interested not just in the gastrointestinal aspects, but the pulmonary aspects as well. And then when I had this wonderful job opportunity to come to the Everest at Utah in 2009, I asked if I could be part of that cystic fibrosis team. They've always had a gastroenterologist as part of that team. And as we've grown, we now have two pediatric gastroenterologists who are on that team. And we pretty much have the largest cystic fibrosis population for a mid-sized city in the country. We have extremely good outcomes nationally when you compare our center. And I think it's because of the, yes, having a gastroenterologist or gastroenterologist involved, but also we have a very collaborative, approachable aspect of our team. We like each other. We work with each other very well. And we really do a lot of outreach to the families, including meeting with them online during the pandemic, but also Prior to that, meeting with them in person, doing fundraisers with them, having a Facebook group for the families, things like that. But we really try to do a lot of outreach for these families. I've been very happy with this team that I'm on. Sounds great. I think the relationship that you have with the other specialists and allied health personnel in a clinic can make such a big difference and, and families pick up on that. 
I agree. I think as a physician or as physicians, we remember we're part of the team and sometimes we're the leaders of the team and sometimes we're the co-leaders and sometimes we are a part of the team. And I'm a big believer from personal perspective to listen to other team members at all times. They often pick things up that I miss. Uh, and I think it's really important to have an open ear. Many of our listeners are trainees in pediatrics or pediatric GI. So can you outline for our listeners the main GI-related manifestations or complications of CF? Yeah, so just kind of a little history. Cystic fibrosis was first described by Dr. Anderson in 1938, and this is really a success story in medicine. At that time, the median survival was one year. When I finished my fellowship, it was in the early 30s in terms of survival. Now it's at the current survival median is 46 years of age. And obviously, there are patients that live much longer than that. So that's a real success. And I attributed a lot of it to the cystic fibrosis community, our quality improvement and collaborative approach nationally, which goes on in the United States as well as Canada. And just to remind the fellows, it is an autosomal recessive inheritance, about one out of every 3,000 live births. And also, as a reminder, cystic fibrosis is caused by a mutation of the CFTR gene, which makes the CFTR protein. So that's the cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator protein, which is involved with uh, chloride and sodium flow through the CFTR protein. And so when there's interrupted flow, it affects water absorption and thickening of secretions. And there's different types of CFTR mutations are called, uh, you know, one through six, the most common, of which is the Delta F5. But for example, type one, Mutations, there's no protein made. Type 2 is a trafficking defect. Type 3 is a function defect. But of all these, the most common is the Delta F508. So that's background. And let's talk about the gastrointestinal tract. So, I mean, we have CFTR throughout our body. So it's not just the lungs, right? So let's go through all that. Obviously, the big thing we think about with these patients, the vast majority of them have pancreatic insufficiency, although some have pancreatic sufficiency. Uh, big thing we see with these patients is colon abnormalities, which include issues like meconiomelias as a baby, going on to DOS or distal intestinal obstructive syndrome, to chronic constipation, to rectal prolapse, to fibrosis and colonopathy. These patients have an increased risk of reflux disease, gastrointestinal reflux disease, lots of issues with malnutrition, which I think in the United States and in Canada, there's been quite a big effort to try to address that with feeds. These patients can have fat-soluble vitamin deficiency issues. They can have liver disease all the way from mild fibrosis to cirrhosis. The alternative word is focal biliary cirrhosis. And then long-term, these patients are at increased risk of colon cancer because of changes in the microbiome and the pH. Okay. That's quite the list of things to keep in mind every time you're seeing one of these kids. You mentioned how you got started in CF in terms of the center that you started your career at or where you're previously working and now in, in Salt Lake City. Not every CF clinic has a dedicated gastroenterologist attached to their clinic. I'm biased. I think they should, but not everyone does. But what do you see as kind of like the ideal role of a pediatric GI doctor within a CF team or within CF care? And what's been your experience so far in kind of being in that role? I agree with you that every cystic fibrosis center, including satellite centers, should have a gastroenterologist ball. I think it makes a big difference. So for example, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation Patient Registry, 
which is basically a national quality improvement study to compare centers to see how they're doing. And there's so many nutritional issues. And as pediatric gastroenterologists, the way I look at it is I look at myself as board certified in pediatric gastroenterology, hepatology, and nutrition. And then that's where we can be very helpful. So let's go through some of these things. Obviously, patients with cystic fibrosis are going to have other instances. There's a lot of overlap between cystic fibrosis and celiac disease. These patients have liver issues. They can have inflammatory bowel disease. And a gastroenterologist can be very helpful in the clinic setting to decide if an issue is strictly related to cystic fibrosis or not. Very helpful in determining nutrition practices. We are all over the map sometimes when you look at centers in terms of how we treat patients in regards to nutrition. There is such variability in terms of dosing and duration of appetite stimulants like cyproheptidine. There's so much variation in terms of what formula is given, whether it's high in MCTs and broken down, whether it's given orally, nasogastric, or through a G tube. And there's huge variation in terms of pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy when you do tube feeds, especially with the tube feeds given overnight. And this is where gastroenterologists can come together and help our pulmonology and other friends in the cystic fibrosis team to help out. And then again, I cannot emphasize enough the one thing that we're really good at is really looking at uh, nutrition in these patients. If you can get a very high weight for length of two years of age, and there's tons of research on this, easy to find on PubMed, but if you can get a high weight for length by two years of age, your long-term survival really has improved quite a bit. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the things I heard is that it's really an individualized approach per, for the patient based on their clinical manifestations at the time. And having good nutrition early on is so important. This wasn't one of the pre-questions we sent you, but as I was thinking, one of the dietitians that I used to work with in Memphis, working with her actually is what inspired me to teach my three-year-old to swallow pills because she was like, right. in our patients with cystic fibrosis, we can teach them very early. And can you give some tips on how you work with your patients to do that? So there are three aspects there. I like to meet patients who have cystic fibrosis very early on, shortly after diagnosis, which most of the time is during the neonatal or just after the neonatal period. And I think it's very helpful to talk very early about nutrition. Two things, emphasizing the importance of nutrition for long-term outcomes, which parents are on board with, but also to mention that there is a chance that there is going to be a gastrostomy in the future. Even if the child is not going to have that, just mentioning that early on makes it not so shocking. Because I look at gastrostomy placement simply as a tool to improve survival and to improve nutrition. But if I'm talking to that family at two and a half years of age for the first time ever, that can be very shocking. It can drag the situation out. Your BMI can continue to decline. And in my opinion, you're somewhat on a uh, ticking clock. Does that make sense? The other thing that I think is really important is to have a dietitian see those children right away during infancy to go over uh, issues with feeds and caloric intake and on a regular basis when these people come in, these patients come in. And finally, I am a huge fan of the feeding therapist. These kiddos have lots of mouth manipulation early. They are nebulizer treatments. There's manipulation of the mouth. You can really affect their oral skills and decline them very quickly. So it's important to have a feeding therapist come to clinic. And we have feeding therapists who come to our clinic and then we set them out, set them up for outpatient care as well. But I think having a gastroenterologist talk to the family very early with a dietitian and with a feeding therapist, I think that's extremely important. 
I'm glad you raised that point and I completely agree with this about the earlier mention mm-hmm. of gastrostomy feeding as a potential tool. I have the same conversations with families with CF or kids with CF in the clinic that I'm a part of here. And I always try and make the point really early on that it is a tool in our toolbox, despite heroic efforts with right. eating and taking supplements. It's just the nature of the disease that sometimes requirements exceed your ability to manage that orally and not to see it as a sign of failure or that you've done anything wrong. It just, it's the nature of the condition. And one of our dietitians, I think, has a a great analogy. She says, if you need eyeglasses to read, you don't blame yourself for not working hard enough. You just get glasses so you can read and (laughs) do what you need to do. And a G-tube can be the same thing. I think a lot of families also, when you talk to them with their baby or with their toddler, they get anxious. This is going to impair physical performance long-term. They worry a lot about sports, I find. And I always tell people that once it heals up, there really are no restrictions. I've had patients that are incredibly good high school swimmers at the local high schools around here. I've had some kids play football. I have a lot of issues with American-style football with head injuries, but I mean, I have kids play football with YouTube. So I remind them there's no restrictions. It is simply a tool. Going back to that long laundry list, unfortunately, of GI manifestations, complications, you talked a little bit about the colonic manifestations, in particular, DIOS and constipation. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about why these issues occur or occur more frequently in children with CF and how you recommend managing them or talk to families about managing them. Well, that's exactly right. And so what do we remember with these babies? Infant cystic fibrosis, about 20% of them are going to get a meconiomelias noted at birth. And again, because of the CFTR pathway issues, they have abnormal bicarb secretion. And so the effluent in the colon becomes very acidic, dehydrated, and it's hard to get things uh, to pass. So when you see these babies, whether they have surgical correction or not, you just need to realize this is going to be a long-term issue, right? And the biggest thing you want to be careful about is distal intestinal obstructive syndrome, which I kind of consider an end result of chronic constipation that's poorly managed, where they get a large amount of undigested food residue with mucins that are unable to be disrupted. Typically in the ileocecal region, it's very viscid. In terms of treatment, lots of things you can do. There's tons of evidence that gastrographin enemas are helpful in the urgent situation, as well as oral or nasogastric go lightly. Interestingly, there has been a Cochrane analysis looking at these patients, and there really is a clear lack of guidelines for these patients. The Cochrane analysis states that obviously these patients need enemas and need osmotic care, but we just don't know exactly what's the best protocol. So for me, I try to do things from above, oral and nasogastrogolite. And if we have a problem, I will use gastrographenins. The issue though, however, is a patient, once they have DIOS or many of these patients in general, are going to have a lot of issues with constipation long-term. And this is something much like the nutrition issues that I talked to families about very early on. I talked to them about most of my patients are going to have chronic constipation, again, due to CFTR mutation issues. And so it's very important to watch for signs of DIOS occurring, to make sure there's an osmotic laxative on board, and to have some type of teaching material available to teach about severe constipation, why it happens, and how to treat it. 
at our hospital, my partner, Dr. Deneau got funding and made a video on YouTube for all patients with constipation. We've made a handout with that as well to what to do in the acute setting when you do a clean out versus maintenance. I often just share all that with my families and their children have cystic fibrosis. What is the name of the YouTube video? So, and I can send you the link if you want it later on. Yes, please. Uh, it is the, if you get on YouTube, it didn't have a great title. Put in pediatric constipation, primary children's hospital. You get pediatric constipation, primary children's hospital on YouTube. And there's an eight minute video that I think is actually really well done. Great. Yeah. Looking forward to learning it and sharing with my patients also. Please. We'd like people to share. Yeah. So I will have to say DIOS is actually the reason I like country music, which is random. But when I was a student, I had a patient who had, I know, right? I had a patient who had DIOS and was hospitalized, was supposed to go to a concert. And so me, as this bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, 30-year medical student, actually messaged the band and called every person that I could think of, finally got a band manager because they had to miss the concert. They were in the hospital. And although the musicians did not come to the hospital, they sent swag and a teddy bear and a t-shirt and a sweatshirt. And it was after that I listened to country music. So oh, I awesome. Yeah, I grew up in Texas, so I knew how to two-step. And then my wife and I, when we met, we both do country music dancing quite a bit. It's been more difficult as we've gotten older. But then we took uh, jitterbug lessons. No. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe NASPGAN 2022, will you be showing us your two-step and jitterbug? Maybe, I'm willing maybe. to learn. So will Jason. Everybody, a little bit of uh, Miralax and then have deer bugs. <laughs> Sounds like the worst time to do the Bad, jitterbug. Badness. Plus a Miralax and 2X lax squares and jitterbugs. I mean, that does not sound like a fun time to me. But so I want to talk a little more about the liver also, because no yeah. talk about cystic fibrosis would be complete without talking about our friend, the liver. And so what is the range of impacts that you have seen and how should children with CF be monitored and what can we do about CF liver disease? When you think about these patients, because of the CF2 mutation, there is going to be some degree of liver damage in most of these patients. There is a great article came out in uh, 2003 by someone called Lenertz that followed a series of patients over time with ultrasound and found that following them at birth all the way up to 18 years of age, between 5 to 10% of the patients in this whole series ended up developing portal hypertension. The nice thing is that the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has wonderful guidelines taking take care of patients with liver disease in terms of screening and therapy, free, open to the public, very helpful for providers. So obviously the things that you would think about really, and it's very important for these patients that you examine their liver and their spleen, looking for ascites, looking for any stigmata of chronic liver disease. These patients, when they come in as part of screening, typically have hepatic panel and GGT obtained. And then if necessary, looking for other things like getting a PT, PTT or ammonia. And just because they have liver disease with cystic fibrosis doesn't mean they don't have anything else going on. So if you're starting to think about that situation, screening for autoimmune hepatitis or alpha-antryption disease, Wilson disease. Ultrasound with uh, Doppler is used quite a bit when you start seeing transaminase elevation or when you start having concerns on physical exam to look for early signs of portal hypertension. And then, of course, patients that are going to progress to potential portal hypertension, they may be getting a liver biopsy and, importantly, undergoing an upper endoscopy to look for varices for possible banding. 
the neat thing is over the past few years is the development of elastography to look for fibrosis and scarring. As I recall, initially being used for following hepatitis C infections and therapy in adults, but we now do that in children. And we do know, and there's been research on this, that if you look at metavir scoring in terms of severity of liver disease, if you can take all patients with cystic fibrosis and you take those with cystic fibrosis and compare them with cystic fibrosis, developing liver disease, elastography is highly accurate in predicting liver disease in these patients. And then a really great study that came out of Canada found that your sensitivity for these patients to pick them up was even better if you did it elastography and combined it with the AST to platelet ratio. So these are very helpful things. And this is, these are studies that have been published in kids. Now, the question that we get, and when I first started doing cystic fibrosis here in the early 2000s, was how do we prevent it or how do we slow the disease down? So there was a time I remember that once we started seeing transaminase elevation, boom, we hit them with versodeoxycholic acid. There is a real question now if that actually works. Again, another Cochrane analysis has looked at urso use in patients with cystic fibrosis and has found no clear benefit. And we don't know exactly what that means. But I, when I think of other diseases associated with the liver, such as sclerosis and cholangitis, where ursodeoxycholic acid high dosing may actually worsen liver outcomes, I think we need to be very careful what we're doing. Finally, if you see a patient that is presenting with poor hypertension and end-stage liver disease in this setting, the sooner you get them evaluated by a liver transplant center, the better. So what I'm hearing is that there are well-established guidelines for monitoring, and it involves obviously a good physical exam and some supplemental imaging testing and biochemical testing over time. Absolutely. And involving our colleagues in transplant if needed. Absolutely. And these patients can sneak up on you because you may be seeing patients for two or three weeks and you may be addressing their nutrition issues and their constipation issues. And you really need to pay attention because I've seen some kids where this has been missed because people are paying attention to other things like pulmonary exacerbations. And next thing you know, we have a really big liver issue. So I just, again, recommend following the guidelines that are put out by the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, biochemical testing, good, good physical exam, ultrasound imaging if warranted. Can you clarify the elastography that you're talking about? Is this MR elastography or ultrasound or? You can do both. We use ultrasound elastography. It is very quick. I would imagine, although I don't know this, the cost is probably less because it's ultrasound and it's in and out. As long as the patient lays still, it doesn't take very long to do. And we do liver elastography by ultrasound like many centers do. And we can link to those guidelines that you mentioned as well. You mentioned a few times about the nutrition issues that children with CF can face. And we talked a little bit about some additional measures that we might use for nutritional support. Maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the more specific deficiencies that kids with CF may face or markers of nutrition challenge that you are monitoring for when you're seeing these kids longitudinally in clinic. Yes. Over 80% of your patients in a typical cystic fibrosis clinic are going to be pancreatic insufficient. You will have some sufficient patients and you need to monitor them for insufficiency over time, which we can talk about. The reason you use PERT or pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy is to help with fat absorption as well as fat-soluble vitamin absorption. You do not want to get low on 
fat-soluble vitamin levels because of the clinical consequences of fat. And of course, with poor fat absorption, you're going to have significant issues with weight and nutrition and therefore long-term outcomes. So very early on, as soon as diagnosis is made, you need to evaluate pancreatic excrement status, which is typically done uh, with a fecolastase one stool test. It's extremely important to follow growth parameters. As pediatric gastroenterologists, we're all pediatricians first, in my opinion, and gastroenterologists second. So growth curves are part of what we do and should be looked at with every single patient. And this is very helpful. Again, like I talked about earlier, having a dietitian and feeding therapist on board early on is extremely important, making sure these patients are coming for their scheduled appointments, not falling behind. And again, the whole point, what I tell families is early, good nutrition, even in the setting of the modulators that we're going to talk about later. For right now, what we know is early, good nutrition improves outcomes, including your lung outcomes, including long-term FED1. Now, in terms of formula, it's really not clear what type of formula to use. So I tend to use formulas that are hydrolyzed and have mainly MCT. It's not really clear in the research if these formulas are better. It makes sense to me with patients being pancreatic insufficient. But again, Cochrane has done many interesting studies looking at this patient population and there's really nothing to suggest that one formula is better than another, but that's what I recommend. And then finally, growth super important work by our group and others that's been published has shown that weight for length of two years of age is such a big predictor. And so how can you prevent that issue? And that's, again, talking to these families early, paying very close attention to their weight of BMI, looking for any social issues that may affect ability to get food and then having a dietitian and feeding therapist involved. That's really important. We've had lots of conversations locally around sometimes the messaging that people hear from different practitioners can be widely divergent. Some really stress the importance almost too rigidly about being on the 50th percentile for BMI and any deviation below that is a big problem. But also sometimes people being a little too accepting of uh, BMI that continues to trail at the bottom end of the curves when we know, like you mentioned, outcomes are really better when you can aim for higher, sort of in the ideal range of BMI in terms of FEV1, in terms of long-term morbidity and survival. So I always try and gauge children, not only by the growth curves, but also what else do they have going on? I've had some kids that are in the sort of 25th to 50th percentile, but they are lean, athletic, very busy in sports and they're doing well clinically. And so I, I think that's fair. That's reasonable. But the kid that's seemingly parked at the third percentile worries me. I agree. And a couple of things, and I think you bring up a really important point about how you talk to families. If a child is having problems, this discussion should not be a punishment discussion with the child, but more importantly with the parents. If you walk into this conversation with the family and say, why can't you get your child's weight up? You are not going to ever make any grounds whatsoever. We all know that. I mean, this is not how you talk to families because often you'll find these families are doing the best they can. Mm-hmm. And they still are having a hard time getting their weight up. When I've told families in terms of gastrostomy placement, for example, I say there's two types of patients I mainly see who need gastrostomies. Kiddos who just aren't gaining weight and then kiddos who are doing okay with their weight, but it's just taking forever to eat. Because these kids need so many calories just for lung health, not even counting the rest of their body. And again, having a conversation early on, what I tell families, most of my families, is when I walk in, I say, we're going to talk about nutrition today, but just so you know, I'm going to talk about nutrition for family today mm-hmm. because that's true. And then the other issue, this is where social work can be extremely, in many countries, including the United States and including Canada, food insecurity can be a big issue. Mm-hmm. Sometimes families are embarrassed to talk about that. And if you can tease that out sometimes as well, because there could be 
state and federal resources to help people out. That's great. We had a young girl that I was following in NCF clinic for a while who just kept kind of bouncing along at the lower end of the curves. And we kept talking about it, you know, really support her. And this is a girl that literally every time I saw her in clinic was chowing on her second lunch. Like she would come to clinic with poutine that she had bought at the hospital cafeteria or sushi or like was chewing on something and she'd already had lunch. So she'd walk into clinic at 2 p.m. eating her second lunch and she was always eating, but despite it, just not gaining weight. And so when we finally we're having the conversation about G-Tube. It was very much a conversation of, you don't have to prove to me that you're making an effort. I see it every single time I see you in clinic. I know it's not for lack of trying or that you're just not eating enough. This is the nature of CF and you're doing heroic work and maybe it's time to give you a helping hand so you don't feel like you have to. And the family were totally on board and she's done fantastic. Yeah, I think you have to be careful. I've seen situations, many situations where children and their families are homeless. Hmm. And to get on the family about the child not having enough nutrition when you don't realize that they're homeless hmm. uh, and living out of a car or living in a shelter. I mean, what point are you doing to help the family by getting on them about that? That's when you can say, how can I help you? Either with a state or federal supplements or a gastroscopy placement, depending on the situation. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on a little bit to some of the advances. I want to talk a little more about the CF modulators. So what should a lowly pediatric gastroenterologist who doesn't do a lot of CF clinic know about CF modulators and the impact that they're having on the issues that we're discussing? So the CFTR modulators are amazing. This is a golden age for the care of cystic fibrosis uh, in many ways. And again, I cannot emphasize enough how great the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation website is in terms of providing information to physicians and families about these different drugs. But if you're busy, just grabbing your local friendly pulmonologist and talking to them, they know these things very well. So the four that we typically talk about, the first one is Ivacaptor, which is known as Kaleidico. It came out in 2012. And this is for patients with gait mutations. So in other words, the CFTR protein is there, but it's not opening to get the chloride to move through. So like the G551D mutation is what you use this for. And so it was a potentiator. Ivacaptor is, and it opens the chloride channel. Just made a huge difference when it came out in 2012. Another one that's kind of followed after that was Orcambi, which is Lumacaptor and Ivacaptor together. It's a combo therapy and it's approved for people with two copies of the Delta 508 mutation. And it is a corrector and it does several things. It helps the CFTR protein form the right shape, travel to the cell surface, and then stay there longer. Okay. There's another one called Simdeco, which is made of, instead of uh, Lumacaptor and Ivacaptor like Orcambi, it's made of Tezacaptor and Ivacaptor like Simdeco. And it's another corrector and it works pretty much the same way as our be, but it appears to have less side effects. And then the relatively new kid on the block that I'm excited about is the Alexacaptor, Tezacaptor, and Ivacaptor, which is the triple combination. Some people call it the uh, triple combo. It's a next generation corrector and it helps uh, stabilize CFTR protein to the right shape in patients with a Delta F508 mutation and traffics it to the cell surface. And it has some other things it does in terms of keeping the protein folded without falling apart and helps keep that protein in place at the cell surface. And it apparently performs really a lot better than many of the other modulators that are out there. It has been approved for children with cystic fibrosis six years or older who have at least one copy of the Delta 508 mutation and at least one copy of over a hundred other type of specified mutations. There's a really neat article. It didn't come out that long ago uh, in New England Journal 
just a few months ago, looking at this triple combo medication and patients with both gating and residual function genotypes and showed that these patients did much better compared to some of the previous CFTR modules. So I, I almost wonder long-term if we're going to end up having one specific medication that you can give for all the different mutations that will cause improvement in lung function. That's incredible. And I can definitely mm -hmm. see why continually speaking with your pulmonologist will be important because of all the new medications that may be down the line and coming for this. And the families and the patients with cystic fibrosis have advocated for these medications. This has really been, yes, pharmaceutical companies have come up with these ideas, but patients and parents have really pushed companies to come up with these CFTR modulators. It's a really amazing collaboration between science and the public. For sure. And the only thing I'll tack on is definitely we've talked a lot about nutrition as we should in this topic area, but definitely from our group's experience here and, and what I've seen in others, the CFTR modulators have had a significant impact in growth and weight gain, at the very least in a subset of patients who are taking them. And the biggest question that I've received more recently, especially with the, the triple modulator, is impact on CF-related liver disease. And is it going to worsen? or perhaps even improve. And I, th I think the jury's still out on that because yeah. we're really days, but I think it'll be interesting to follow over time. Yeah, I think there are some few things to think about. So that's, in my opinion, one of the most important issues is I have families that say, well, if my child's going to get on tricapital, why do, you, do I need to worry about a gastrostomy button? My answer is, well, because you're going to get on it at age six and there may be some unknown damage to your lungs due to malnutrition prior to that. And I think it's going to be interesting long-term what we find out if there are specific subset of patients that do better with gastrostomy feeds. And then just for the audience to be aware is that you can get cataracts and tricapsids. It's important to have an ophthalmologist do regular exams on these patients. And then the two other organs that I think about quite a bit with these modulators is the pancreas. There have been case reports published of pancreatic insufficient patients converting to pancreatic sufficiency with Ivacaftor, which is really interesting because CFTR appears to be waking up in these patients. You can get pancreatitis in patients who are pancreatic sufficient. There have been cases published of patients with pancreatic insufficiency getting pancreatitis, which really makes no sense because if you think about it, if you have pancreatic insufficiency, there's a good chance that during fetal development, you pretty much scarred down your pancreas. We don't really know why that is. There are some mouse models that suggest that with some of these CFTR modulators that you can get ductal CFTR to come back, which may be the reason these patients get sufficiency and may actually get pancreatitis. And then you brought up a good point, I think, about the liver. It if you look at the websites of these drugs, like specifically Trikafta, up to 5 to 15% of these patients you can transaminase elevation. And there's very useful algorithms you can follow provided by the company about reducing doses, removing the dose, transient removing the dose, permanent removal of the medication if needed. And you're exactly right. We don't really know if it's going to progress liver disease long-term in patients who already have liver disease or make it better. There's some very small studies in adult patients that Lumicaptor, Ivacaptor together improved outland phosphatase who had at least one Delta F508 mutation. There's a tiny study of adults in CF who received Lumicaptor, Ivacaptor. They had less addict steatosis by MRI imaging over time. But I think the jury is still out on that and we need to be alert. For sure. Maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the areas of CF care that have changed over time. And, and one of the things that I wanted to, to chat with you about is PPI use. Uh, it sort of has seemed to me anyway that the pendulum has swung a little bit back and forth on PPI use from every child uh, with CF that's pancreatic insufficient needs acid suppression to not everyone does to maybe be very careful because of the risks of SIBO and C. diff or what have you. So do all children with CF need 
need to be on acid suppressive therapy and beyond GERD, what are the potential benefits and what are the risks? Well, I think the three of us would agree that PPI use in children is just way overused. It's overused in colic as an example. I get very concerned about fracture risk, microbiome changes in very young children who are having potential inappropriate use of PPIs. So specifically with cystic fibrosis, exactly right. I mean, the concern is that pancreatic enzymes can get broken down quite a bit by stomach acid. So with PERT therapy, there's concern. And that's why PPIs are often added. Also, patients with cystic fibrosis tend to have more GERD, think, compared to patients that don't have cystic fibrosis. But the PPIs are powerful drugs. And I'm old enough to remember when they first came out. I remember when Imeprazole first came out and it was considered a cure-all. And it's a wonderful drug. I remember adults when I was in medical school with gastric bleeding and not responding to some of these other drugs and PPIs took care of stuff. But these are irreversible binders of the proton pump and comes back every 24 hours. And that removal of stomach acid, it really affects your microbiome in ways we probably don't understand at times. Specifically for uh, cystic fibrosis, there are studies that suggest that uh, long-term use of PPI in these patients, there are perhaps more pulmonary exacerbations long-term in these patients, and there are an increased risk of hospitalizations due to pulmonary issues in these patients. In terms of C. diff, it is somewhat unclear. Our group published some research a few years ago showing that all patients in the hospital with PPI use had a higher risk of C. diff, but the patients with cystic fibrosis did not have a higher rate of C. diff. So at least from our research from our big children's hospital, we didn't find increased risk of C. diff compared to kids who got who were on chronic PPIs for other reasons. But I still think that more research needs to be done on that because that was simply a retrospective study. So again, I worry quite a bit about the pulmonary aspects of this. As you recall, probably the December issue of a journal pediatric showed that PPI use may be worsening ergotracheomalacia and patients with that separate issue. So I just think we need to really think why we're prescribing these patients. I used to be pretty automatic about prescribing these drugs and I have become less automatic over time. I use them quite a bit when patients, I know they're being good about using enzyme replacement therapy and they're not gaining weight. I'll throw a PPI on often, or if they're having obviously epigastric distress or beer type symptoms, but a lot needs to be learned in that whole area. I completely agree. Well, and a really important thing you just mentioned is that there's so much to learn here. And I know that there's a lot of opportunity that's from the CF Foundation. And correct me if I'm wrong, they help fund some pediatric GI training. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely, they do. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has understood for many years that we are behind in our gastrointestinal research in these patients. And yet, once again, why I would implore anyone who's interested in cystic fibrosis, who's a pediatric gastroenterologist, to see if you can help your center out. But the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation does have an innovation pipeline program. It's the Developing Innovative Gastroenterology Specialty Training Program or the Digest Program, where requirements are to be in a cystic fibrosis clinic on a regular occasion to get to get some degree of research out of that. But for fellows and also for fellowship directors, there is a funding for salary support and it is not a small amount. And they also pay for your travel to the annual meeting. So if you're looking for salary support for a fellow who is interested in cystic fibrosis, it's a great three-year program. We have one of our fellows finishing up right now, and I think she has really got quite a bit out of it, not just for cystic fibrosis care, but also for just nutrition care. It's been great. Highly recommend. All of our listeners, yeah. anyone going to teach in tomorrow or anyone interested in CF, please consider that. 
I mean, the NASP and meeting is awesome and wonderful, but the CF meeting is actually, annual meeting is really awesome as well. And I would recommend the North American Cystic Fibrosis Conference if you're able to go to another meeting. That's awesome. All right. So we've talked about uh, PPI use and, and obviously one of the other big classes of medication that kids with CF are exposed to on a regular basis are antibiotics. And we all know that this can have a huge impact on the microbiome and we're still at our infancy in terms of understanding the microbiome and the impact that we can see with the medications that we're using. We know that kids with CF are also prone to maybe some issues with dysmotility and all of this can kind of contribute to the development of SIBO or the risk of, of developing small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So how often do you make the diagnosis of SIBO in children with CF and, and how do you manage this or, or talk about that risk profile with kids and their families? So the big things are, I usually go just kind of by history. Honestly, you can do breath testing, but I usually can kind of pick up by some of the descriptions. Patient gets distended, having some diarrhea, I do a trial, some antibiotics, which we'll talk about in a second, and they get better. And again, just a background for everybody is that your microbiome is involved with so much of your long-term health of your body, not just your gastrointestinal tract. Heck, there's even some data that affects psychiatric disease. So I always like to remind people that your gut microbiome is pretty unstable until about two years of age. And breastfed infants have a different microbiome than formula-fed infants. And typically by about three years of age, pretty much, not always, you're going to have the adult microbiome. And there's two main groups of bacteria. I always think about the pharmacutes and the bacteroidetes. And uh, the bacteroidetes, I always kind of look at the ones that have negative health outcomes often, like gram-negative rods, the firmicutes are more gram-positive. And so you can do a firmicute to bacteroidetes ratio and FB ratio. And it's, it's really fascinating when you look at these broad classes of bacteria, that ratio, the association with other health issues like outcomes with inflammatory bowel disease, for example. So what does that mean for cystic fibrosis? It's it just basically the same thing. There have been some great studies looking at the microbiome of children with cystic fibrosis and children with cystic fibrosis have much lower bacterial diversity in the intestinal microbiome compared to children who do not have cystic fibrosis. We think there's some pretty significant inflammatory metabolic and immune issues involved with that. And we talked a lot about the brain-gut access when we talked to our patients with functional abdominal pain or patients with irritable bowel syndrome, but there is also a gut-lung access in these patients. And we know that in babies, the common lung pathogens will colonize the gut prior to colonizing the respiratory tract. And some really interesting findings, for example, parabacteroides in many patients they have found will, through research, will kind of go down, decrease in, in the amount and frequency in the gut prior to initial pseudomonas colonization in infants. And there have been shown to be high correlations between specific intestinal bacteria types, such as like the rheumococcus type strains and FEV1 outcomes. And these changes in taxa, bacterial taxa seem to really affect children, but, and it may affect adults, but it's different bacteria in kids and adults. So how do you treat it? There's lots of things you can do. I mean, I, I treat like I would any patient with bacterial overgrowth. There's a lot of good research on rifaximine. Sometimes rifaximine is hard to get covered by insurance. So I use metronidazole or entralgyptomycin in a cycle type pattern. And now I look for improvement. Okay. No, I think that's helpful because I've certainly seen it, not in a huge number, but it's it's definitely there and they can respond to that empiric course of therapy. Yeah, it's really weird. I, I would say it's probably five to 10% of my patients. And I've had the rare patient who has kind of almost an inflammatory bowel disease type picture mm -hmm. with cystic fibrosis. And they probably don't have Crohn's. They probably don't have ulcerative colitis. There are some ulcerative lesions you can see specifically in a cystic fibrosis and gastrointestinal disease. And I've seen these patients, this is also the literature, so I'm not just throwing something out there. They can respond to aminosicillate use. Mm -hmm. Interesting. 
Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that. So John, you know, we've been, we've talked a little bit about the range of roles that you've had in your career, you know, clinical care, clinical research. I know that you've been program director at your current institution. You've had a uh, significant involvement in NASPEGAN, being a chair of the technology committee and a counselor. How has your career evolved over time that has allowed you to have all of these kind of diverse roles? You haven't been sort of locked into one phenotype of a practitioner. So I would have started my fellowship when I was about 29, right? So my brain at 29 is not my brain at 53. And your interests are just going to change over time. I mean, if someone had told me as a third year fellow, I would be doing cystic fibrosis care, I would not have believed them. I was going to do something completely different. And so I think as, as a fellow and even as young faculty, you just need to be aware that your interests will change over time. Opportunities may arise that may really work out for you to explore those possibilities. But I can guarantee you that how your career starts as a fellow is not how your career will end. And keep in mind for fellows, our field is really changing. You know, when I went through fellowship, we were just starting to scope children on a regular basis. The generation before me wasn't necessarily doing that. We were just starting to treat portal hypertension with banding, for example. I remember that. And now look where we're at in terms of interventional techniques, the expansion of motility, the expansion of interventional processes such as ERCP. So just realize the field's going to change and just look for opportunities. There's a very good book that as a fellow, you should read only when you're not on call. It's called The Vanishing Physician Scientist by Andrew Schaefer. It came out in 2009. He was concerned about what is happening with science in the field of medicine. And I think that, you know, here we are 30 years later, we still haven't addressed his concerns. But what I have learned is that if you're going to do research as an MD, if you're going to do the basic science type aspects, really collaborating with a PhD is what you're going to need to do at this point. And MDs have a lot to offer in terms of quality improvement, research, coming out with medication trials, things like that. But just be aware that what you learn during fellowship may not match what you're doing five years later. For sure. When you look back at your career so far, what do you think has been the most valuable advice that you've received? And, and what advice do you have for our listeners? I think of three things. One is your friends and your family should always come before your job. And that's hard for many people, including people like me. I come from a very driven family. But especially, you know, if you have a spouse or sniffing at other or children, we work quite hard as physicians, but we need to remember there's other people around us and to cut off communication because you're busy. That's a real problem. So friends and family always come first because parents are going to get sick. Children are going to get sick. Your spouse is going to have something they need to do. They should always come first. I have come from a point of being pretty lucky in American society. I'm a white cis male. And I think diversity is extremely important in medicine. I'm a big believer in that. I think medicine is trying. We have a lot of work to do, but we need to get better. I think we're ahead of other fields of science, but we still need to work on that. That's advice I have for my listeners if you expand your vision. And then as someone who's 53, and Jason, you've heard this from me before, I'm a big believer that you should always learn. I have some specific beliefs I have in learning in terms of my field. I try to read a journal article at least once a day to every other day just to learn something new. But it's been a rule of mine for many years now to learn something new about every five years. 
there's a great study that came out in the journal of gerontology and they looked at people 58 to 86 years of age and had them take some very easy freshman college classes, like 15 hours per week. And they found their cognitive ability improved by about 30 years. And I'm not asking you to go back into college, but what I'm saying, <laughs> they want to, I don't care, but, but, but what I'm saying is, is to learn new things. So even as a busy physician, I learned how to ski when I moved from Texas to Utah and to ski well. I picked up road biking a few years ago and learned how to that skill. I've learned the skill of fly fishing. I'm getting a theology degree right now at a school where I'm getting an emphasis in the, the philosophy of religion, which has kind of opened my brain to the more subjective aspects of life. So I'm a big believer in long-term learning. I think that's important. Never get locked in. You never, you never know it all. And there's always more to learn and then ways in which you can stretch yourself. So I think that's very, that's really, really good advice. John, this has been a fantastic conversation. Do you have any final words for our listeners? Listen to and subscribe to Bow Sounds. It is awesome. It is such a good, not just pediatric GI podcast, but a medical podcast. And my fellows listen to it all the time. And we talk about it when we have a meeting. So I would just encourage people to subscribe to whatever listening app you use. And let's get the learning going. Thank you for all that you guys do. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. It's been, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much. So that was a great conversation with Dr. John Pohl. Be sure to join us on Twitter for the at PedsGI chat, where you can uh, ask Dr. Pohl your questions and engage with him more on the topic. I first met him at the third year fellows conference and he's such a cool guy. I'm so glad we got to have him on. If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and at Instagram at Sounds and on Facebook at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And if you liked what you heard and you want to support us, it would be great if you could do one or more of the following three things. One, tell somebody about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help other people discover us. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPGAN Foundation. And you can also get that there through www.naspgan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASPGAN Foundation is doing including pediatric GI research and public education. And as always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guest and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Till next time, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.